0: From the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer who thrives in the genre of the psychological thriller. Her prose is fraught with tension and brimming with relentless terror. She's joining me today to talk about her recent novel, Run on Red, as well as her previous and upcoming work. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Noel Liley. welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for joining me. I read your recent work entitled Run on Red and somehow made it all the way to the end without having a full-on panic attack.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's great to hear.
0: (laughs) The uh, tension was relentless, the intrigue endlessly complex, and the writing was masterful. So looking forward to talking with you about your novel as well as hearing about your previous works.
1: Thank you so much. I'm excited to chat.
0: (laughs) So Run on Red is about two young women named Olivia and Laura. They're on their way to a bonfire party that's being put on by some people in their college. And they're out in the middle of nowhere, have no cell signal, and are driving a car that's being held together by a thread. (laughs) So all those details themselves are scary enough. But then enter a malevolent pickup with dark figures inside. So a lot of authors that I talk to tell me that their novels begin with a scene just popping into their head and it seems interesting. So they explore it further. So did run on red begin with this scene popping into your head and progress from there? And if not, what inspired the story?
1: So in some ways, this book has been in me for a long time and was inspired by something that actually happened to me when I Mm. was... A senior in high school. My best friend Anna and I were driving up through the hills just outside of Boise to go to a bonfire. And as we were driving, we noticed some headlights behind us and ended up almost being run off the road by a couple of guys. Mm -hmm. And they both had their hoodies pulled up to hide their faces. They passed us. It was a really scary road like it is in the book. And Mm -hmm. I have no idea who these guys were. We ended up finding a way to turn around and just come back home. But they seemed like they really wanted to toy with us. And I've always wondered what might have happened if we'd been a little less lucky that night. So this book, like most of my books, is just a little dip into my worst nightmares and a story about what might have happened if things had been a lot worse.
0: Okay, so never found out. What possibly that could have been? Like, oh, yeah, so-and-so were out raising hell the other night. It was probably them, something like that.
1: No, no idea. I mean, couldn't see their faces. And so obviously had no idea who they were. And it was back in the 90s, so we didn't have, you know, cell phones. So there wasn't really a way for us to get a hold of anybody until we got back home. So, yeah, no idea who they were or what they wanted.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So the the strange way the abductors behave when they first come after Olivia and Laura seems very eerie and foreboding. But at the end, when you find out the dynamic between the men, it almost seems kind of comical. So was your story outlined to make those connections, or are you more of a pantser?
1: I'm a lot more on the pantser side of things than I am on the plotter side of things. I like to see the book kind of unfold like a movie while I write the book and then I go back and I smooth things out, make sure that they make sense. I did want the reader to look back and recognize that Kyle was at the wheel both literally and figuratively that Tony thought he was along for the ride to terrorize his ex-girlfriend and that Kyle had alternate plans for the night. So I wanted it to look just a little bit ridiculous looking back that Tony didn't quite have an idea of what he was in for in the night.
0: Mm -hmm. Because you expertly set it up to where the terror is drawn out, where they don't immediately step out and try to attack them. They just sit there for a while and you're like, what's going on? What are they doing? And then you come to find out later they're probably in there arguing like, no, what are we doing? Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> well, as you just spoke of, the reason for the attack on Olivia and Laura is really dark and stems from a college fraternity. And the word fraternity basically means brotherhood. Why do you think that in real life so much heinous stuff goes on in fraternities that are supposed to exist to instill a sense of responsibility and community?
1: It's a great question. I think that in American society and in a lot of societies, male relationships sometimes end up being about one upping each other especially when you're in college, you're learning what it means to be a man, you're experimenting with your identity. And I think that some pretty toxic iterations of that can develop behind closed doors where there might be alcohol involved, where there might be some bad actors who are manipulating others. So yeah, I think it can be a great environment for a lot of people, but sometimes it can breed some pretty toxic interactions. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I used to... Look askance when people would throw around terms like toxic masculinity, but I think there is like a healthy masculinity and a toxic masculinity. I had Aaron Lewis on the show who used to be a stripper. Oh wow! And and she was talking about how when she was out in the main area, the guys would be cutting up and acting a particular way, acting like meatheads, but she said that was. Very often, just a front, as soon as they would go to the back for a dance, they would completely change. They would turn into these soft-spoken, sensitive guys that were oh, having wow. that were having problems, so they needed somebody to talk to. You know? Oh, that's <laughs> <But> then, fascinating. <laughs> then as soon as, soon as they walk back out, it's like, yeah, man, I, you know, just <laughs> insert vulgarity, so...
1: Wow. Yeah. A lot of fronting, a lot of trying to keep up with each other, but mm-hmm. not quite reflecting maybe who they are on the inside. Thankfully. Thankfully most people are not uh not actual bad dudes inside, but there can mm-hmm. be a culture that really amps up those interactions for sure.
0: Yeah. The power of a crowd as well as yeah. the synergistic effect of massive amounts of testosterone. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, As I spoke earlier about when they first are trying to corner the girls, you have a way of drawing out the terror of a situation just by letting the reader into Olivia's head. And so even though small things are happening, when you experience them through Olivia's viewpoint, it makes you severely anxious. So did you inject a large amount of yourself into the character of Olivia to create the operation of her mind? And if not, how did you flesh out the psychology of Olivia and the way she responded to stress?
2: Olivia is
1: absolutely a slightly more extreme version of myself and the way that my mind processes things. (laughs) I have been a true crime junkie, very interested in the dark side of humanity since i was little i loved watching unsolved mysteries and i tuned into dateline every chance i got probably way too young so yeah that mindset is very familiar to me those stories all shaped me for better and for worse
0: (laughs) so you're saying you have a dark mind
1: yeah a little bit this is the podcast is where i belong for sure (laughs)
0: So, you said a more extreme version of yourself. You listed some similarities. Where's the more extreme? Is she a little bit more over the top?
1: Yeah, she's a little more over the top. I have a built-in Laura in my head, I think, that reminds me, you know, most people are good people. Most of the time, everything's okay. I think she leans into the anxiety a little more than I do most of the time, which Mm -hmm. helps me function in the world.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wish I had a Laura. <laughs> <Somebody> <laughs> talk, needs a Laura. <laughs> talk me off the ledge. <laughs> like, Vince, you're out of your damn mind. Calm down. <laughs> well, an absolutely maddening aspect of the story is Olivia being just out of the reach of a cell signal, as well as the awareness of somebody passing by that could help her. When you write these elements, and it kind of sounds like it, Do you start with a framework for the scene and then come back and see what you can add to increase the tension? And if not, how do you create scenes with these exacerbating factors that make the situation so much worse than it already is?
1: I do have these moments and these emotions that I know that I want to include in the novel when I set out to write it. And then when I get to that point in writing, I really try to lean into the emotion of that. I was drawing back on that actual experience I had had with my friend and the terror of not being able to call anybody for help, knowing that we were on our own and that there just wasn't anybody coming to help us. So I wanted to really lean into the terror of that. And then, yep, I go through and later passes and make sure that things are lining up, making sense with the rest of the parts of the novel coming together. But yeah, that emotion and that touch point is really important for me to lean into. Okay.
0: And I can't remember, you said the actual incident, you were out in kind of a rural area in the middle of nowhere?
1: Yeah, we were out heading up. It's called Lucky Peak. Mm -hmm. It's a reservoir just outside of Boise. takes about 30 minutes to drive up there. But she had a super old flip phone it was not old at the time, but we that was all we had with us. And it didn't get service once we headed up the canyon. So, yeah, nothing to do once we saw those guys except turn around and head home. And luckily we could.
0: Mm. Were you wearing a sequin halter top?
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no sequins.
0: <laughs> so it's not totally true to life. Okay. No, nope, there's some uh, <laughs> license there. <laughs> well... Along with constantly being just out of the reach of the cell signal, another maddening aspect was the fact that the abductor's voices were familiar to the women, so they have to deal with the thought that they might be dealing with someone that has something personal against them, or even worse, that it might be somebody that they thought was their friend. So, you really spared no expense when it came to tormenting these women. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So... I couldn't figure it out, but did anyone message you and tell you that they were able to figure out who the two men were before they finished the book?
1: Yes. In fact, I had a couple of people. I thought I was pretty subtle with the clues that I left, but mm-hmm. I had a couple of people comment and say that they were annoyed that it was so obvious who the men wearing the masks at the beginning were so I I don't know how they put that together I'm really impressed but I tried to be pretty subtle and yeah hopefully it landed somewhere in between just maddening but not totally out of the blue when that reveal landed
0: Hmm. are you sure they're telling the truth they just want to look like they're really (laughs) intuitive (laughs) maybe that was it (laughs) (laughs) Are these people you know in the community or just random people that have read the book?
1: No, they've been just a few random readers where I'll kind of be perusing the comments on a psychological thriller book group on Facebook or Bookstagram comments that I'm reading.
0: Psychological thrillers. That is my bread and butter. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Just kind of a side note, what draws you to psychological thrillers or psychological anything? I like psychological thriller, horror. I don't know. What else would there be? Maybe like a dark romance, dark psychological romance?
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's just such an interesting puzzle to put the pieces together. It's probably that drive that I put into Olivia to think that maybe you can be one step ahead or you can figure it out or you can find a way to avert the tragedy if you were the protagonist. I think that's a lot of it for me is you're right there in the scene with them and wondering if you could do anything differently to use your wits or your metal to get out of that situation. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I really like the way you write Olivia's realistic response to trauma. There were points where she actually regretted trying to help Laura because her nerves were frayed and she was deep in the throes of the fight or flight response. A lot of people like to avoid stuff like that. Like I had Christian Taftrip on and he's a Danish filmmaker and he made mention of how talking about his film. Well, if it had been made in America, it probably would have been they rose to the occasion. They had no doubts and they just saved the day. But in your book, there's this clinging to self-preservation that makes her have second thoughts in certain instances. So when you humanize a character to that level, are you attempting to elevate the terror of the story? Or is it more about making the reader connect with the character on a deeper level?
1: For me, it's more about helping the reader connect on a deeper level. I think that most of the time when we learn about trauma that somebody has been through, especially in a situation where It's something that's hard for us to imagine. You know, we see that outside story, we hear about the outside story, but fiction gives an opportunity to infuse some of that real trauma response, those real reactions that people feel in extreme or traumatic situations. And I hope it not only helps the reader connect with the characters, but offers a little bit of insight, a little bit of empathy for some of the trauma responses that happen in the real world.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you ever, you know, you don't have to like say what, well, actually we can use the real life event that the book spawned from. Did you have any reaction during that, that later on when you were thinking about it, like, oh, why did I do that? I should have just done this instead. Like, why did I have this very human response?
1: Absolutely. I've had so many times where I either froze where I wished I would have gone toward, mm-hmm. you know, and these are more minor Traumas, I guess you could call it, or situations where there's some kind of threat perceived. But I learned something from talking with a friend who's a therapist, and she told me that that little black box in our brain takes over and decides which of those four responses fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And there's not a whole lot of conscious control we have over it. So often people are really surprised by how they react in traumatic or threatening situations. And that makes me feel a little bit more generous with myself in those situations. And it makes me see other people's situations differently, too, that sometimes it's just, you know, your mind flips the switch and decides that's how you're going to react. And that's how you do. Mm -hmm.
0: I've been lucky enough to not really be involved in any vehicular accidents in my lifetime. But I have this tendency when I'm driving down the road and traffic is backed up and I see like this minor accident where people are up walking around. Nobody appears to be injured. I'm like, move the damn, you know, just (laughs) like getting irritated with them. And then I had the experience myself where, you know, I just got rear-ended. I wasn't injured, but I was, I think this was like the third time somebody had done something to damage my car. I'm storming around, just pissed off and agitated. And I started thinking like, ah, maybe I should cut these people some slack the next time I drive by, you know, they may not be injured, but they may be just about to like (laughs) strangle somebody.
1: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Totally different mental framework.
0: (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Well, at one point, Olivia realizes that her love of true crime media was based on distance from the events. They were just stories. And now she's neck deep in the middle of it. So you would not be an example. You like true crime and you like thriller novels, perhaps horror. I don't know. Why are so many people that are interested in true crime media, which talk about true events of torture, rape, murder? terrified to watch horror movies and read horror novels or thrillers with fictional characters. I know so many people like this that think I'm crazy that I read and watch horror, but then they're like, Oh, I'm going to miss my podcast. It's talking about the BTK killer.
1: (laughs) I know exactly who you're talking about. I (laughs) see that as well. And I could not figure it out for a long time. i really think it comes down to, in my opinion anyway, is what we were just talking about. I think that it almost allows you to take a slightly voyeuristic approach to bad things happening. You can peer through the window and see it like the aftermath. You can hear about it as told from police and from sometimes the victim themselves or the survivor, but it's a lot less of a visceral experience most of the time. I think that with fiction, it does take you so that you're walking right there with the protagonist. Sometimes you feel like they're inside their head, and sometimes I think that can be a little bit too anxiety-producing for somebody to jump into the head of a person who is going through something horrific.
0: So I'm trying to think of... Some particular killers, a lot of times when they make movies about serial killers, they're not like super gory or anything. They're not trying to like dive into the violence. But you would say that those same people that like to voyeuristically look at the aftermath, if they were to see a movie that was very graphic and crafted over the actual crimes at that point, they would probably be like, oh, no, I'm not watching that.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it's not that simple, but it does dip you into a sensory experience with it rather than Mm -hmm. hearing about it in a little bit more one-dimensional. You're hearing about what happened. You're not seeing it. You're not feeling quite as intensely that trauma with that person, I guess.
0: Yeah, I remember when I was a child. I forget what I watched. I think it may have been on uh, The Night Stalker. It was when I was like eight years old, had just been caught, I think, when I was eight years old. And I was like, I saw this made-for-TV movie, so obviously not violent at all. And I was terrified to go to sleep at night. Absolutely. Because I had it in the back of my head, like, oh, they got him in jail, but the Night Stalker was part of some satanic cult, so they're all on the prowl now. Oh,
1: gosh, yeah. (laughs) I relate to that experience.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So are you saying you have a problem with anxiety like me? Just a little bit, probably. Just a little bit? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Well, you have a friend as a therapist. I have to pay to see one. I need to find a friend that's a therapist. (laughs) You do. She's a
1: fantastic friend. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, the element of time ticking away and only having a brief amount of time to react is very prominent throughout the story and keeps the suspense at a fevered pitch. Olivia is constantly reciting a rule of time to react to dangerous situations that comes in threes. Is that based on something real? And if so, can you tell us about it?
1: It's based on something real in its most basic form. I can't remember which survival show I saw it on, but that is an actual thing where you need to prioritize your needs in a survival situation. Three minutes without oxygen, three hours without shelter, three weeks without food. So Basically, you need to figure out your air supply first. You need to figure out, you know, your shelter quickly if you're out in the cold or out in the heat. So that's real. And I wanted that to be something that she latched onto and expanded to everything that maybe this applies to other situations that could keep her safe. I think about that myself whenever we go on a road trip or camping. If something bad were to happen and the car went off the side of the road or we plunged into the river or if we got lost and stuck in a snowbank.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Three weeks without food. That's how long you can make it without food.
1: Yeah. It varies a little bit depending on your body type, um, your age, but uh, you'll use your fat stores and you can survive that long until you actually would die of starvation.
0: Oh, I'm trying to cut sugar and salt out of my diet i think i would make it like three days and just it wouldn't be fun i would just fall apart i would i would mentally shut down that's how i would die yes. like he had three weeks he didn't make it three hours what the hell happened oh god it's so hard to do yes i think high fructose corn syrup i think i would put that right on par with heroin
1: you're not alone for sure it is delicious
0: it is. I drink it straight. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, from the cart. <laughs> <yes. laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the way you paint the discomfort that Olivia feels is visceral. You can feel the intense cold she experiences as she wanders around in the forest in a sequin halter top, as well as the agony of walking because her shoes have fallen apart. So... When you get into these detailed scenes where you're describing the feel of the environment, I imagine you're basically putting yourself in their body. Do you ever feel like you lose touch with reality and have to engage in some sort of grounding technique?
1: Yeah, in some ways it feels like what I imagine lucid dreaming would be like. It Mm -hmm. kind of feels like being there. I'm trying to be there. So I do find it really helpful after writing an intense scene like that to take a break and go for a walk or chat with my husband. He works at home as well or pet my cat. And that brings me back to my house where it's safe.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I can see something tactile like petting a cat would help. One of the nonfiction things I like to read is philosophy of mind. Okay. And so you're using your consciousness to dissect consciousness. It gets so meta that sometimes I have to just stop and grab a hold of my desk.
1: Yeah, like, that hurts my brain. Like just I'm, <laughs> thinking
0: all I, I, I'm like, I'm undoing my own consciousness right now. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I'm going to try petting the dog next time. It's smart. Yeah, <laughs>
1: it's easy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, when it came to the main villain, which I guess we can do spoilers, right? We've already yeah, talked about that. I think so. Okay. All right. Well, when it came to Kyle, he's your typical meathead frat boy with the addition of being a murderer. But even though he was a bastard, at least he had the strength of his convictions. Tony was a bit of a worm. And even though he wasn't as violent as Kyle, he was just as guilty, if not more, probably, in my opinion. So were those two men supposed to represent separate aspects of the crime? Is that something that went through your head?
1: It was. That's a great question. I saw Kyle, like you said, as more of the straightforward bad guy. He's kind of like the classic monster human that we think of. He's kind of proud of who he is. He does bad things and he doesn't really feel bad about it. He's like that classic definition of evil. And Tony is definitely more slippery. He he likes to think of himself as a good guy even while he's doing terrible things, which in some ways makes it so that the girls can manipulate him a little bit, but Mm -hmm. it makes him a little bit scarier in some ways to me that, you know, he's willing to go along with it if it's about his self-preservation.
0: Yeah. He's a bit of a wild card. Kyle, you can pretty much predict how he's going to behave, but Tony's like, just depends on what's going on in his mind. Exactly. Yeah. It was kind of like, Kyle represented the violent acts and Tony represented the greed that motivated them.
1: I like that analysis. Yeah. Yeah. I like that.
0: Yeah. I love how in the end, just as you spoke of it being easy to manipulate them, that Olivia and Laura are too tired to fight back. I mean, the adrenal fatigue, the physical fatigue, the mental fatigue, just, they can't keep going at some point. So they are able to, wage psychological warfare against them by kind of producing a rift between them. So do you think that if you hadn't written it that way, that the story would have fallen a little flat and been less believable?
1: I think so. I mean, they were up against physically stronger, morally corrupt villains, Mm -hmm. and a physical fight doesn't often win in those cases. And I mean, frankly, a lot of times a psychological fight doesn't either. It takes a little bit of luck in either case, sometimes a combination of all three to get out of a situation like that where you're up against those physically stronger, morally scary people. So yeah, I think that Mm -hmm. going to a psychological fight had to be where things went for it to land and feel a little bit more realistic than a physical fight in the end.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would have taken away from the story if somehow they just both all of a sudden got a second wind and
2: exactly
0: <laughs> figured out that they knew Krav Maga and then there was like this <laughs> Matrix-like fight where they... <laughs> that would have been a twist, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait a minute, what just happened? We went from a uh, uh, psychological thriller to dystopian fiction. <laughs>
1: yeah, surprise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well... In the story, you had excellent medical realism with the aspect of Laura and the possibility of her having a brain bleed, which was at the very beginning. The element of her throwing up was terrifying because not only did it mean she had a potentially dangerous injury, but it was loud, so it was going to give away their position to the men that were chasing them. So did you do any kind of technical research for the book, or do you just write what you know?
1: I love it when I can write what I know, but a lot of those really specific details about you know what the symptoms would be for an injury or a medical condition that I haven't experienced, then that does require some research. There is a fantastic Facebook group called Trauma Fiction. Mm. It's full of authors writing to ask the weirdest, most interesting questions related to like diseases and injuries and death and... There's a number of EMTs, police officers, and medical personnel in that group that will answer the questions without looking at you askance.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I remember... That's definitely a much more cost-effective way of doing it. I remember seeing a, what do they call that, distance learning, where you just do it remotely from a college. There was a course for forensics for fiction writers, I think.
2: Ooh, that so,
0: sounds
1: fascinating.
0: Yeah. So if you wanted to write a like a crime drama that got really heavy and specific into the way the crime scene was detailed and evidence and so on, apparently this was the class to take. I thought about taking it just for the information.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. I don't know if I would have the stomach for it. I I should, given what I write, but that would be super interesting.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the story, there's a lot of themes involving violence towards women, including a horrific form of human trafficking that I thought was as original as it was disturbing. So, do you prefer reading and writing stories that are about real life terror, or do you read and have you entertained the thought of writing something supernatural?
1: I generally prefer writing about and reading about human monsters, real people, real scary situations. I find that often there is that element. I mean, humans are just so creative in the ways that they terrorize each other, hurt each other, do wild and awful things. So sometimes the truth is stranger than what you'd read in a book. So I do prefer real life horrors. My second novel, Ask for Andrea, does dip into the supernatural just a little bit. I sh- I shouldn't say just a little bit. It's about three women who were murdered by the same man and all three women are dead at the start of the <laughs> at the start of the book. So they are ghosts, but they're about as human ghosts as you can get. So they don't have powers. They don't have like the ability to walk through walls. They're just dead. And <laughs> they're trying to figure out some way to uh, interact with the living world to bring this guy to justice. So, yeah, I can't say that I don't write Supernatural, but that probably will be the only book that I write that has those ghostly elements to it.
0: Okay. Well, was there any scene in the book that you had difficulty writing because it affected you emotionally? And if so, if it won't cause a unnecessary spoiler, can you tell us which one?
1: Yes. All of the scenes in the crawl space caused me a lot of reaction. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I dreaded sitting down in my chair to write some of those because it's the worst thing I could imagine. I have a huge fear of spiders and writing about the spiders crawling over her down in the crawl space it made my skin crawl while i was writing that so i really tried to lean in but those scenes were pretty hard to write in the crawl space
0: yeah are you claustrophobic at all
1: i'm not super claustrophobic i can deal with small spaces but a dark small space filled with spiders no oh yeah that's
0: definitely that's (laughs) a a thing into its own yeah I don't know what it is you know I have been skydiving used to ride motorcycles all kinds of stuff I don't know what it is I am claustrophobic as hell yeah (laughs) like I can watch the most brutal violent like I love French extremism like irreversible and a Serbian film well that's not French extremism but it's in the same vein yeah but I cannot watch a movie that's got, like, tame forms of violence if there's something that involves claustrophobia. Like, have you ever seen that movie Sanctum?
1: No, I haven't seen that one.
0: It's about spelunkers, the cave. Oh, gosh. The <laughs> people that go snaking around in those tunnels and caves. I could not. I mean, I finished it, but I looked away. Like, there's certain spots, like, especially when this one guy was panicking because he got stuck. I was Ugh. like, I, <laughs> close my eyes, plug my ears. I don't know why that is my button. It's like everything else is fair game. I can handle it. But that one thing just sets me off.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it seems like everybody's got their one thing that above all else is the Mm -hmm. the biggest trigger.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I love the cover. Thank you. You Perfectly listeners at home trying to get it into the uh, shot here. Syncs up perfectly with the opening scene of the book. Is there any particular designer we can give a plug to?
1: Yeah, I work with a it's a collective of designers. It's called MIBL. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're mm. a Ukraine-based design collective and they do incredible work. So Awesome. Yeah, check them out. They're so easy to work with and they do fantastic work.
0: How did you come across them? I'm curious.
1: Recommendations from fellow indie authors.
0: Oh, okay. All right. I'll Be sure to put that in the description. That's uh Absolutely. pretty solid. Well, how long did it take you to write Run on Red? And what did you do to celebrate?
1: It took me about nine months. I find that that's a good pace for me to write at, to get the main book written and to get editing and proofreading completed. And when I was done, I went on a camping trip with my family and I made them helped me test out glow-in-the-dark paint to see (laughs) how far away it was visible that Uh, that comes up in the book so (laughs) they think their mom is ridiculous I have two boys and they love it but they think I'm very silly so we went camping to celebrate
0: (laughs) so nine months to birth this baby
1: (laughs) yeah yeah that's fitting
0: (laughs) so tell me about glow-in-the-dark paint how did that even come into the equation (laughs) (laughs)
1: well i wasn't sure how long it would be visible on skin after dark Mm -hmm. i wanted it to be pretty accurate and i will tell you it's really hard to get off skin that stuff stayed Mm. on my leg for a very long time so probably don't Mm. put it on skin
0: (laughs) (laughs) what what's it even intended for i mean is it for like body art and stuff like that or is it
1: no i think there's some that's body art that's probably a lot more washable this was spray like spray glow-in-the-dark paint. I think it was meant for art projects, not people.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, tell me about your previous novel, The Thicket.
1: The Thicket was my first thriller, and it's about a serial killer who chooses his victims and stalks his victims using haunted houses. He is a previous employee of one of the biggest ones in the Pacific Northwest. And so he's very familiar with the exits ins and outs and everybody is already screaming and there's a lot of chaos and fake blood. So uh, (laughs) he, uh, (laughs) he plans his crime based on that. That was another one that had a very visceral image of walking through a haunted house myself and seeing a security guard standing there while somebody chased a guest with a chainsaw. It was a fake chainsaw, but the security guard didn't even glance. He just kept walking and ignored the screaming. And it seems like in a lot of ways, that would be a very scary place to have a real crime occur. So I I wanted to draw that out. It's a group of friends who who visit the haunted house and find that they're uh, face-to-face with this guy who's targeted them in this scary situation.
0: Have you ever gone to a haunted house where they have that, I don't even know how they have it set up, but a chainsaw that it runs, and if they run it up against something, it'll shoot sparks?
1: Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) I've been there with the chainsaw, but I've never seen the sparks.
0: Oh, my God. I went to Alice Cooper's Nightmare one time, and it was in a mall. Yeah, And so it was amazing. You go through the, the, the special effects and everything. It was crazy. But long story short, When you're done with it, it exits out into the mall parking lot. So you're like, okay, it's over. I'm outside. And so you drop your guard and you start, all right, what are we going to do now? And doing that, not knowing that there is this small shed that's got a curtain across it. As soon as you walk out, some dude in, I think he was dressed like Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (sighs) comes running out and like revs this chainsaw up and i don't know how they have it rigged up i mean surely it can't cut you but like you'd hope he'll (laughs) he'll come at you and miss you and then hit the concrete like a parking block or something like that and it fired off sparks scared the living hell out of me you know i'm not a small guy i just about jumped on top of my friend's back and (laughs) (laughs) that
1: sounds terrifying and amazing at the same time
0: (laughs) I don't know if they still put it on, but uh, that was definitely the best one I'd ever been to.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm going to look that up. That's a
0: great <laughs> tip. <laughs> so you mentioned it already, Ask for Andrea, your first and only Supernatural thriller?
1: I believe so. That okay. was kind of a unique one that just kind of demanded to be written. I always think it's so cheesy when authors say that, but I was writing Run on Red. I was just... Starting into it, and the idea hit me for Ask for Andrea. And Mm. that one, I think I wrote in six months, start to finish, because it demanded to be written. And it's very different than what I'll probably write in the future, but I'm biased, but I do really love that novel. Mm. I tried to make those ghost women as realistic as I could, and I just got thinking about how many stories we don't hear from the other side about the ones who don't survive. Mm. So that's my imagination of what their stories might be like
0: yeah yeah I can see how the supernatural it's kind of an aspect of the real life horror yeah so I can see how even though it's not something you have a predilection for that it would kind of evolve from the real life terror or be an aspect of it so run on red nine months Mm -hmm. ask for Andrea six months and how long for the thicket
1: the thicket I don't even know. I wrote and rewrote that one because it was my first novel, and I think I was just scared to put it out there. (laughs) (laughs) I had been a ghostwriter and an editor for a long time, so I Mm. helped edit other people's books, and I ghostwrote books once in a while for the authors I connected with it made me excited to write on my own as well. But the idea of putting that out there into the world, we've talked a lot about anxiety in this, uh,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> in this interview, but that kept that book tucked away for a long time. So I probably had that completed, oh gosh, four years ago uh-huh. and uh, just kind of kept it tucked back until I pushed through that anxiety to put it out there into the world.
0: Is it just kind of a feeling of being exposed, vulnerable? Yeah, it yeah. kind of
1: feels like you're tap dancing naked <laughs> on a big stage with Strangers Watching. Oh
0: God, that sounds horrible. <laughs> I don't feel that way as much anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, speaking of horror. <laughs> so yeah, that anxiety has eased a lot. But that very first book just took me a while to get up the courage.
0: Uh, well, with regard to publishing those books, were they all published through Dynamite?
1: Yeah, Dynamite Books. That's a an imprint that my friend who's also an editor, we've created. So it's very small. It's primarily my books at this point. But mm. maybe that will change in the future. We'll see. We'll see how things go. I've it's been two years since I released the thicket. So things are still snowballing and moving moving ahead. So that might change in the future that I'm the only one published under Dynamite Books imprint. <laughs>
0: And so you guys are both editors? Is that what I... Yes. Yeah. Okay. So
1: she's a fantastic editor and we swap edits with each other. It's nice to have a friend who's a therapist and a friend who's an editor. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Do you do the formatting and all that as well?
1: I do. Yeah.
0: Okay. Awesome. Well, listeners at home, if you're an indie writer, look out for Dynamite Books. (laughs) So when did you start writing and what was the catalyst that propelled you into writing seriously with the intent to publish, which I guess would be The Thicket, right?
1: Right. The Thicket was the first one. I mean, I've been writing for forever. I minored in editing in college. I was always the nerd who loved English class and I always thought about how cool it would be to write my own book, but editing other people's writing and ghostwriting felt like a safer way to do that where I could be behind the scenes a little bit. So I've been writing forever. I love it. Words are, words are my jam. So that's a kind of vague answer, but I've been writing and reading since I could write and read and loving it.
0: Mm-hmm. So what's that like ghostwriting? I mean, is it fiction, nonfiction? Are you doing biographies for people?
1: primarily fiction, but often in genres that are a little bit new to me, more of a straight suspense or mystery. I can't reveal too much about that. Um, Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. I thought (laughs) you wouldn't be a ghost. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Then I would stop being a ghost. But uh, I do really enjoy it. I've stopped doing that since I've been writing under my own name. I just don't have the time to do that as much anymore. Mm. But it is very fun. Usually the author will give me the framework and sometimes they'll give me a very rough first draft to go by. And then we take it for there and I dive in and we collaborate. It's a really fun process.
0: Okay. Well, are there any writers that you admire for their writing skill, the technical ability, but don't particularly care for the genre they write within?
1: Oh yeah. I'll read pretty much anything. I tend to read thriller and horror, but Colleen Hoover, she can suck me in with whatever she writes about. Usually it's romance and I don't read much romance, but she's such a fantastic writer that you give me a Colleen Hoover romance, I'll read it.
0: Nice. Colleen Hoover. All right. I have to remember that. Well, what kind of writing atmosphere do you need? Is this your writing atmosphere that you're in right now or...
1: Yeah. This is my little office sanctuary. I really just need my phone silenced and a couple hours in front of me with a quiet office and the cat locked out of the room because she wants to (laughs) be under the keyboard under my hands while I'm typing. So she's locked out and then I can write.
0: (laughs) I'm surprised the cat leaves you alone, like doesn't sit at the uh, door and meow or something like that.
1: She does, but she's learned I won't give in, so she okay. she accepts her fate usually when I kick her out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, how much time do you spend writing in any given week, and how do you schedule it around your friends and family?
1: I usually try to keep a pretty close nine-to-five schedule. Like, if I'm having a typical week, I'll spend about, I don't know, let's see, maybe maybe five hours a day writing, maybe an hour on some of the business aspects of things. And then inevitably there's something else random that comes up that uh, my schedule is flexible enough that I leave a little bit of room in the day to do that. Then I have kids, so it's nice to have the flexibility to be able to go see a a school performance or uh, pick them up if I need to. But I do try to keep work hours since this is my full-time job and I try to keep my butt in the chair and writing most hours during the day. Mm -hmm.
0: So you said you don't go stride anymore, but you still do editing.
1: I still do editing for friends and for authors that I connected with previously. So it's a smaller pool these days, but it's nice to be able to trade those services with other authors that I trust and connect with, at least for the developmental aspects.
0: Gotcha. Well, do your friends and family read your work? And if so, who is your biggest fan?
1: They do. My husband is my biggest fan for sure. That's cheesy and adorable. And he is always my last reader because he never has one critical thing to say, <laughs> say about the book. <laughs> so I, there's a
0: lot of bias there.
2: My,
1: yeah, my editors get to go in and tell me which characters they hate and who needs to have less airtime, but him being so enthusiastic and my last reader once everything's, you know, packaged up and ready to go out the door is fantastic and that's what I need, that little boost of confidence and mm-hmm. yeah, I have a terrific group of friends who are fabulous cheerleaders as well, so that circle of support just means a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, the answer to this question may be much different than I thought it would be now that I know that you are actually an editor, but <laughs> they say in the editing process, you have to kill your darlings. So what are the most common darlings you have to kill, if any?
1: Oh, everybody has their darlings. I am no exception. It's probably like things that I think are funny that my initial readers are like, why did you put that in there? That distracted me. This was a tense situation. It's not funny.
0: <laughs> so,
1: things like that or side characters who want to steal a little too much spotlight. There was too much about Ziggy in the first draft of Run on Red because I kind of got attached to that poor guy, but it was too much and I had to tone him back and just make his role be what it needed to be instead of him trying to steal a little bit of the spotlight. So those are usually my darlings, things I think are funny, but readers don't care about, and uh, <laughs> side characters.
0: <laughs> well, what's the most common thing that you as an editor, is there something that, I mean, I hate to generalize, but is there something that everybody kind of has a tendency towards doing, like maybe over describing a setting or a person's personal characteristics, something like that.
1: In fiction particularly, I would say a lot of the authors I've worked with lean toward over-describing, like you said. They feel like they have to give every action chronologically to the reader, but like we don't need to know they ate breakfast. I mean, sometimes that detail adds a little bit of color to the book, but Mm. uh, that it's okay to skip over that chronology instead of telling us that... They walked to the mailbox and they opened the flap and they, we just need to know they got the letter if the letter is important. So paring down some of that fluff helps a lot. And then I would also say that easing into that first chapter and that first scene can sometimes be really tricky that I always end up cutting the first two chapters that I write and weaving that information somewhere else so that we can start out with something that's got us kind of by the throat where we're right in the action instead of backing into it and easing into that tension to start with. If you write thrillers anyways, I'm giving a little bit of thriller and industry advice, but yeah. Yeah. Cutting things down. is usually, <laughs> usually the key.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I took a, a writer's workshop a long time ago and one of the assignments I think she told me that you don't have to describe what absolutely every single person is wearing.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) I don't know why I had that in my head, but for some reason it was like Joe walked in, he was wearing a tan blazer, you know, (laughs) just like, like from the head to the toe. I was like, well, yeah, you've got to like paint the picture. Right. And then I started, you know, reading, started paying attention when I was reading mainstream stuff like, oh yeah, they don't uh, really do that. Do they? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice.
0: So this is kind of a personal question for me to you. I'm just curious, what do you find to be the most effective social media platform for marketing your book?
1: I know that there is a lot of buzz about new platforms and some of them can be incredibly effective for visibility. TikTok's got one of the only real organic reaches out there, whereas other platforms are a lot more pay to play. But I have found that Instagram has been the best for me to really connect with other book reviewers, other authors, other, you know, just readers in general, it feels like a friendlier platform. And Mm. it feels like the interactions, especially among book reviewers, readers, writers are generally pretty positive and supportive. So I've connected with several other thriller writers that I've now gotten to meet in real life because of connections off of Instagram. And that one is, it feels like a slower platform, but those connections feel deeper than some of the other social media platforms I've been part of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. I'm not going to disparage any other platforms, but as far as Instagram is concerned, that's the only platform I'm on because I find it, well, if you count YouTube, but that's kind of a different thing. Instagram is pretty much the only platform I'm on because it kind of seems like it's a place for art. Yeah. And a very, a very supportive place for art. And like you said, I don't really see anything that's not positive. I mean, there's occasional stuff, but like no god awful stuff like you see on, well, I won't name it, but it rhymes <laughs> with it rhymes with itter. And, uh, <laughs> yeah,
2: gotcha. Um, <laughs>
0: But I don't know anything about TikTok. What did you mean by TikTok being more organic?
1: So unlike some of the other platforms where you can, you know, TikTok allows for ads, but ads are not the primary way that people consume new content. So Mm. if you create a video and the algorithm sees that it's gaining traction, that uh people are responding to it positively, they're liking it, they're commenting on it, it will push that pretty hard into their discovery channels so that people you've never interacted with before can see that content. So it's a great way to reach new readers that may have never heard about me before. It's been fantastic for indie authors who can get their name out there along with some of the more traditionally published authors Mm -hmm. just by creating good content instead of throwing a ton of marketing dollars at the book. So it's a fun kind of wild west social media platform still in a lot of ways, but Mm -hmm. it does reward good content rather than paid ads for now. Things might change in the future, but uh, it's a fun little platform.
0: Okay. Well, what is the life of Noelle Eiligh like outside of writing?
1: Oh, it's really pretty boring. It's nothing like my books. I think that's usually the case. I mean, that's ideal, right? I love to read. I enjoy hiking with my husband. We live near the foothills, so we get out and hike a lot. Other than that, I watch trashy TV and try to keep up with my kids. <laughs> pretty boring.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what kind of trashy TV? Cuz like my my fiance and I love, you know, watching psychological horror movies, real brutal stuff that gets in real deep. The dark seedy underbelly, but then she'll watch 90 Day Fiance.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a nice palette cleanser. I'll watch Love is, it? is Blind is that it is? all day long. <laughs> yep.
0: <laughs> oh, that yes, yes, that's her current thing is Love is Blind.
1: It's fantastic <laughs> entertainment. It's a train wreck, but it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so that kind. I also have a soft spot for telenovelas. I speak Spanish and oh. that helps me feel like I'm not forgetting vocabulary. So I love A good telenovela.
0: Okay. Where did the uh, bilingual come from? Was that in relation to a job or just you?
1: I think it's just that love of language. I studied Spanish translation in college and I lived in Mexico for about six months trying to really get that knowledge to gel. So just a love of
0: language. So I'm assuming you're going to tell me it's true that immersion is the best way to learn a language.
1: Yes, it is. Yeah. (laughs) Ideally in a teeny tiny small town where nobody speaks a word of English. That uh, (laughs) was very helpful.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine did, I forget how long, he went over to Nicaragua, I think. Uh Uh-huh. Did some sort of immersive language, something or other. It was relatively inexpensive. We were in our 20s, like 21, 22 at the time when he did it. So.
1: Oh, fantastic.
0: Yeah. Well, are you a fan of film? And if so, what genre and what are some of your favorites?
1: Oh, that's such a hard question. I mean, horror for sure. Scary thrillers. I tend to watch what I read along with those trashy palate cleansers, uh, (laughs) reality TV. I love, I don't know if you saw that midnight mass, Michael Flanagan's TV series.
2: Mm
1: -mm. It's, Definitely add that to your list. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, His film Hush as well was some of those lesser known, smaller horror films. They're not generally the uh, Halloween blockbusters, although Halloween, it's fantastic. But uh, some of the indie horror, smaller, lesser known films that can scare me and make me check my door locks Mm -hmm. eight more times at night um, are my favorites.
0: Mm -hmm. Have you seen Speak No Evil?
1: No, I haven't seen that one. Do you have Shudder? Yes.
0: Yeah, check it out. <laughs> okay, Definitely check will. it out. <laughs> it's, I, uh, will. I think you would like it because it's real world terror, very psychological, and has a lot to do with boundaries.
1: Ooh, that sounds like fantastic. People,
0: people not respecting your boundaries type of thing, but it's taken to a whole another level. It's really wacky.
1: Yeah. Thank you for the recommendation. I will check that out. Speak Mm -hmm. No Evil. Yes. Okay.
0: Yes, (laughs) ma'am. So being a writer, as well as an editor, what advice do you have for aspiring writers that just can't seem to get their book completed or have a lot of false starts that end up getting trashed?
1: That's a great question. I would say for one thing, read the book, saves the cat, writes a novel. It breaks down the elements of plot arc in a really helpful, concrete way that I think makes writing a novel feel a little more approachable into the important beats that need to be there for a satisfying reader experience. And then I would say write 300 words a day. That's really small. That's doable. But If you do that five days a week, you're going to have a novel written before a year is over and sooner than that. And that's a confidence booster to have a completed work that then you can go back and edit and hone. But just get it done. Write 300 words a day. That's a small enough amount that uh, you can knock that out in 20 minutes if you just sit down and do it.
0: I hear a lot of people say that one of the reasons that they have like a false start and it gets trashed is they just kind of lose the direction they're going. And if you look up articles on the internet, they'll tell you, well, that's because you don't have an outline. But then I talk to actual authors, and if they have an outline at all, it's kind of like a a bare bones framework at best. So is the answer somewhere in between there?
1: I think it's somewhere in between that book I just referenced, That Saves the Cat. That completely changed my perspective because it breaks it down into more... Emotion driven key moments in the book that we feel this with the protagonist, we go here with the protagonist instead of this happens, then X happens, then Y happens. So it's a fantastic way to get unstuck when you can see, okay, I'm about here in the novel arc, and here's where we need to go next to bring this protagonist on their journey in whatever genre you're writing. So I think that can kind of spark some ideas and help get things moving again. And I know there's a lot of talk about writer's block, but I found that half of that is anxiety most of the time, where if I put my butt in the chair and I tell myself, okay, you can either stare at this blank screen for a half an hour, or you can write something, even if it's terrible, then usually I write something and it's not terrible. Sometimes it's terrible, but uh, (laughs) then I come back the next day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Noel, it has been a pleasure talking with you.
1: You as well. It's been so great to chat. I appreciate you having me.
0: Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about?
1: I for sure want to plug my upcoming novel. It's called None Left to Tell. It'll be out in mid-November of 2023 of this year. It's a fictionalized account based on a true story one of the most gruesome, deadly massacres in U.S. history, uh, the Meadows Massacre. So it's required a lot of research. It's a slightly new twist on the thriller genre for me, but I'm really excited about it. So watch out for that.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Noelle, thank you again for joining me.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.